0: All right, well, if you have your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 2. And uh, what I'm going to do over the next uh, several minutes, I'm just going to go through this text and explain it to us. You might be surprised how applicable a text that was written at the end of the first century can be to our lives today in the 21st century. But there's a lot here that I want us to, uh, to unpack uh, together in these words. It's good to see you. Uh, it's always good to see your faces. Uh, even if it's only half of them, I know what the other half looks like. So it's, uh, it's, it's good to see you. You know, during the, week, uh, during the week, we can struggle, can't we, with thinking, with all the struggles that we face. Are we the only ones that are struggling to hold on to faith in this week? And we can think that and it, it pulls us down, and then we get together on Sunday, and we look around, and we're reminded, you know what? We're not alone. We're in this together. We're all struggling together, and so I know we usually kind of stand up, or in the past, we would stand up, and we would greet people, but we can't really do that right now. We'll do that at the, at the end, but maybe just uh, look around and wave at one another or something as a way of... Uh, of passing the peace as a way of greeting one another. Just wave and say hi. See, we need each other. We need to be in one another's presence because it encourages us to keep going, all right? Well, let's pray again. I just want to pray and, again, just ask for God's help as we look at these words. Father, we humble ourselves before you, and we recognize that we are needy. We recognize that we are finite. We recognize that we are weak, We recognize, Father, that we struggle, and if this uh, year and a half, however long it's been, battle with this virus has taught us anything, it's taught us that we are not in control. We like to think we are, Father. We certainly like to feel that we are in control, but we are not. And so, Father, we come to you recognizing that where we are finite, you are infinite. Where we are weak, you are strong. Where we can't see around the corner, Father, you see everything. And so we pray, as Dara prayed, that you, through your Spirit, would work in our hearts. Give us courage, Father, as the Lord Jesus has spoken to these churches about being faithful in the midst uh, of of a culture that stands opposed. We pray, Father, that you would give us the courage to be faithful, would you take a few moments just quietly, don't say anything out loud, but just ask God to speak to your heart today. And then would you take a few moments and just pray for me, pray that, uh, pray that God might speak through me what he wants to say to us today. Well, Father, again, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, that though you sit enthroned above the heavens, you stoop in grace to show us love and compassion and concern. And so, Father, we pray that we would feel that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, when you drive in your car, you probably don't drive based on headings, uh, course uh, degrees, right? But if you're a pilot flying an airplane or uh, if you are a, who is it that drives a boat? Whoever it is that drives a boat, uh, some, whatever they're called, uh, they use course degrees to navigate. And so they would say, okay, five degrees, uh, and that's the direction they're going. And if you're thinking about a 360 Uh, degree circle, if you're one degree off course, it probably doesn't make that much difference in normal life. If I'm trying to walk back to my chair here and I'm one degree off course, it's really not going to make that much of a difference. But if you're flying an airplane, for every degree that you are off course based on where you're heading, if you travel 60 miles, you miss your target by a mile. So if you think about it, uh, if you're trying to fly from Galway to Dublin, and you're one degree out of 360, you're one degree off course, you miss the airport by two miles. You end up landing in Ikea. Now maybe that's where you're going anyway, and you think, well, that's great. It saves me the travel. But think about if you're flying from Sydney, Australia, To Dublin Airport and you're one degree off course you're uh, you miss Dublin Airport by 180 miles you end up in Killarney and then you've got to go get your bags back at Dublin Airport right no see a, a one degree difference over the course of a long distance causes you to miss your target completely If you're flying to the moon and you are one degree off course, you miss the moon by over 4,000 miles and you end up just drifting off into space, you're lost. Now, maybe you experienced some of that during this last year and a half. Maybe you had uh, COVID-15. Now, I know what you're saying, it's COVID-19, but COVID-15, maybe you put on 15 pounds during the lockdown right? A lot of us did. Maybe you put on uh, a few pounds. You know, little little decisions that you made in the moment may not have had much of an impact, but when they're coupled with other little decisions you make, they cause big consequences. Maybe you suffered relationally, where little slights, little things that you said, Maybe taken by themselves didn't make that much of a difference. But but over time, you woke up one day and you felt estranged from a child or a parent or a friend or a spouse. Maybe spiritually. You thought, you know what, I'm not going to read my Bible today. I'm not going to pray today. And maybe taken in isolation, that's not that big of a deal. But over time what happens you wake up one day and you feel a million miles away from intimacy and oneness with our heavenly father see little things little degrees little compromises over time make a huge difference all of us in some area of our lives have woken up one day and we've ended up in a place that we never thought we would be And when we look back, it's often not down to one big decision. It's often down to a thousand little things that added up over time. Little compromises. One degree off here. One degree off there. One degree off there over time. I had a professor in seminary, and he used to tell us, That a denomination or a church, and I would add, or a Christian, never falls. It erodes. Loses passion, and then it loses zeal, and then it loses its sense of morality, and then it loses its sense of orthodoxy. Little things over time make a big difference, and we're going to see that today in this church. Thyatira wasn't an important city. It was more of a blue collar town. And as such, uh, being a blue collar town, just like last week, as Will looked at uh, this church in Pergamum, uh, there are many guilds or unions uh, around certain trades and crafts that were very prominent in the city, these manufacturing trades. And being a blue collar town, they were even probably even more prominent in a place like Thyatira. And that means they were more important in the economic and the social life of this particular town. And one characteristic, and Will talked about this last week, one characteristic that all of these guilds shared together is they, were all, uh, they all had their own patron deity. And as part of their meetings together, they would engage in worship of this deity. And sometimes that involved sexual immorality. Sometimes it didn't. Sometimes when you see the phrase sexual immorality, uh, it is a euphemism for idolatry. You see that in the Old Testament. But sometimes that was a part of these particular feasts. And to not be involved in the guilds if you were a craftsman or a a craftswoman or a merchant, to not be involved in the guilds was uh, an invitation to economic and social suffering. And that leads to a problem in this church. They had elevated and listened to uh, a person, probably a woman, who was uh, essentially baptizing idolatry. And arguing that idolatry in these guilds was, was not a big deal and was leading others to compromise. And so last week in Pergamum, we saw there that the many were faithful, but then there were some who were pursuing idolatry outside of the walls. But here in this church, it seems to be reversed. It seems to be, it seems to be that the many are following after this person teaching this error and that only a few are being faithful. That from the top down, it seems like this church had essentially wed the philosophy and the morality of the culture around them to the gospel. And that that had led them, like it will lead us, where we don't want to go. And so Jesus is about to intervene. How do we stand firm in a society that pushes us to wed the gospel to its own morality? A society that pushes us to compromise. How do we live no compromise kind of lives in this kind of environment? Well, see, this church had been blown off course by the wind of the culture around them. Look down at verse 20. Again, this follows the pattern that Jesus uh, has implemented in the rest of these churches. There's a problem here in this church. And in 20, we see him say, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, So here we go. Someone, again, probably a woman, he calls her symbolically Jezebel. Uh, No one named their kid Jezebel. It was kind of like naming your kid Hitler. You didn't didn't do that. So this is a symbolic name that he's giving to this person, probably a woman, who is uh, essentially carving out a following in this church by sanctifying sin, by arguing that it's okay to some degree, uh, this church from the top down is being poisoned with this teaching. And I say to some degree because we don't know if the leadership was just passive and allowing this to happen or if they were a part of it, if they were actively endorsing what this person is teaching. But any, in any event, no one is stopping her. And here's how this manifested itself. This woman claiming divine authority, she calls herself here a prophetess. Uh, that is a, uh, a Jesus follower bringing with them divine revelation, a word from God. And she's teaching that it's okay to participate and be comfortable with sin. She's delivering a message that says there's no connection between what you do in here at church and what goes on out there in the world, but in particular at the guild meetings. That idolatry and immorality are not incompatible with the gospel. Now, if you remember your Old Testament, Jezebel is a a queen in the northern kingdom of Israel. And she was helping to erode uh, the devotion of the Israelites by wedding the worship of Yahweh with the worship of Baal. She's blending the two. And making them one. And she's married to Ahab, who was one of Israel's most wicked kings. But but she's no slouch. She's pretty wicked herself. Um, The difference between Jezebel in the Old Testament and Balaam that we saw back in verse 14 last week is that Jezebel has authority. Jezebel has power. She's the queen. She can do what she wants. Not just influence. So she has both power and influence in the Old Testament. And she is a, you can read about her in 1 Kings 16 and following, but but she is a lying, murdering, conniving, stealing, godless woman who eventually meets a horrible demise. She's thrown out of a third-story window. She's backed over by Jehu and his chariot, and then she's eaten by dogs. You can read about it in 2 Kings 9 if you're interested in that. And this woman in Revelation, this person in Revelation in Thyatira, she has authority and she has influence. And coupled with the importance of the trade guilds in their particular city, she's offering a huge temptation towards idolatry. So much so that Jesus says in verse 20 that many are seduced, many are deceived. She's claiming to bring words from God, but a little bit later in the word, Jesus says that it's the words of Satan who are deceiving. Now, that makes sense, right? I mean, my flesh likes sin. That's what my flesh does. It it enjoys sin. But listen, maybe it's more subtle than that. Maybe it's it's a, a, a little bit more subtle than that than a mere fleshly desire to sin. Because think about it. What she is teaching this church sounds attractive to those whose livelihoods, whose friendships, whose social standing depend upon participating in the guilds and in their feasts. She's offering them a way to make their lives easier by sanctifying sin. And after all, doesn't God want my life to be easy? Doesn't God want me to be happy? So maybe this isn't all that bad. Maybe she's right. Maybe it is okay. You see? The subtle temptation. Again, in this town, uh, at this time, the economic and social well-being of a person was tied to their, not just their membership, their participation in these guilds and in their feasts. And again, the problem with the meetings in most of these guilds is that they involved sacrifices. They involved active idolatry and worship of these foreign deities. And often, that involves sexual immorality. And so if you think about your career, you could not advance in your career. You could not sell in the marketplace apart from participating in the guild. Apart from the organic food uh, stamp of approval, right? You couldn't operate. You couldn't sell. And so to have someone come along and offer a justification to you of how the idolatrous and possibly immoral practices of the guild were actually okay for Christians, that it wasn't that big a deal... To have someone in the church with the authority and the influence that came from the leadership in the church, to have someone come along and to say to you, you know what, you don't have to have a life of hardship. You can participate in the guilds, and it's all okay. Man, that would be pretty attractive, wouldn't it? That would be pretty attractive uh, to, to have someone come along and say that. It would sound really good to ears that desperately wanted to hear it. Now listen, I don't want to show of hands, but how many of you find it difficult to ignore someone who is telling you what you really want to hear? See, if we're honest, many of us even seek that out, don't we? We want to be uh, around people. We want to talk to people. We want to read things that say to us and affirm in us what we want to hear, what we want the truth to be. As Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter four, thinking to his, speaking to his protege, Timish, Timothy, he says that the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and they will wander off into myths. Man, I don't know about you, but that, that fits me. I like to have people around me who tell me what I want to hear. But Jesus is about to do what the leadership will not do. Jesus is about to stop her. We might say Jezebel is about to meet Jesus. Look at verse 18. Uh, As as God, Jesus writes here to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God. It's a messianic term, a term of divinity. Jesus is speaking here, and he is God. And part of being God means that he sees what is going on under the surface. He says, uh, who has eyes like a flame of fire. He sees everything with a penetrating gaze. If you look down in verse 23, in verse 23, uh, he says, all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, who gives according to your works. He sees, you can't fool him. This person may have, have fooled uh, a lot of people, but she's not fooling Jesus. Jesus. And he, has, he says in verse 18, whose feet are like burnished bronze. He walks among the churches in purity. And I think there, there's an element in which he's about to come in judgment. He's about to stamp this thing out with these powerful feet. So because of her refusal to repent, Christ is coming to judge her and those who follow after. Look at verse 21. I gave her time to repent. is on her refusal to repent. She's had an opportunity to repent. And we don't know what that means, what that looked like or what that means. But she didn't take it. And so the wrath of Jesus is coming because of her refusal to repent, both for her and, you'll notice, for her children. Now, probably her children there is her closest adherents who weren't interested in repenting either. And Jesus says, distress And sickness and tribulation are coming as a result of your refusal to repent. There is an offer of deliverance for those that are on the fence. He says, those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. There's an opportunity for some who might be kicking the tires of what she's saying, who may not have fully jumped in with her particular philosophy and teaching but only if they repent and turn back to what is true and what is right. See, repentance is key. We can't fool God, can we? We can't fool the the eyes of the one who sees all things, who sees all of our works. We can't fool him. He sees, and he's able to take care of business, but he offers mercy when we repent And turn back and he says here in verse 23 he's gonna make an example of this particular group and all the churches will know that I don't miss anything and that I'm gonna come in judgment now lest we feel ourselves above uh, this kind of thing we need to remember that small things matter Small things matter. We can't get comfortable with sin, no matter what it costs us to be obedient. Again, think about our society around us today and the push to accept and to sanctify any outside belief. It's all around us, isn't it? It's out there, right? Not only does society tell us that we can believe anything we like, but that anything anyone believes must be accepted by everyone else as legitimate, as true. One pastor, Kevin DeYoung, I was listening to him talk one time at a conference, and he talked about a new class of Puritan where tolerance, and that is the acceptance and the affirmation of anything, but where tolerance was the the, the chief requirement And that's certainly the case in our society today, that our identity can center on anything we want it to center on. But even more than that, we're told that that then a a person must be free and unopposed in acting out of that identity. And so there's no such thing as sin. There's a moral ambiguity, and, and no one can speak against anyone else without being considered a bigot. I mean, is that a fair assessment of what we see around us? But I want to suggest there's a more subtle foe for us. Like, we see that, and it's blatant, and it's big, and we get it. But I think there's a a more subtle foe here. There's more. Because if I'm honest with myself, I am a person who loves to listen to people who tell me what I want to hear. And so all of us get tempted to justify these little compromises with sin in order to maybe grease the skids a little bit, make life a little more easy, a little more palatable. We all face that temptation. Small things that allow us to keep our heads down and not draw attention to how different we are. And we look for people who will tell us that it's just not that big a deal. And listen, that's the oldest lie in the book. Genesis 3, God wants you to be happy. He's holding out on you. This isn't that big a deal. Small compromises now, though, end up in big consequences later. That's a fact, isn't it? Small compromises now end up in big consequences later. And here's the reality. Here's the reality. Ridicule is better than retribution. It's better to be made fun of. It's better to be isolated from friends or maybe on the fringe of society than to face God's wrath and discipline. Physical poverty which is one of the dangers that these people who are faithful are facing in this church in Thyatira, but physical poverty is better than spiritual poverty. Think about the proverbs. Proverbs sixteen eight: Better to have little with godliness than to be rich and dishonest. Psalm thirty seven sixteen: It's better to be godly and have little. Than to be evil and be rich. And it is likely here in verse 19, where Jesus says to the faithful, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. That there's a remnant of those that are faithful and that are growing. But it is very likely that because of their faithfulness, they are shut out of business. Their advancement in their careers is thwarted because of their refusal to participate in the guilds. They're not on the A-list of Thyatira's elite because of their faithfulness. But see, God's enemies get shut out eternally, not just temporally, eternally. And as difficult as life can be, this life is not all there is. I mean, think about on the day of judgment. If you could, on the day of judgment, if you could sell your salvation, like if there was an eBay on the day of judgment and you could put your salvation up on eBay, how much do you think you would get for it? See, the reality is that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that this life is as bad as it gets next to eternity. But the flip side's also true, isn't it? If you're not a believer, this life is as good as it will ever be eternally. So how do we avoid the destruction that comes from entangling ourselves in the world's pursuits? Here's what Jesus says to to these faithful in verses 24 to 29. We hold on for dear life to God's truth. This is what he tells the the, the faithful. And I want us to think about what what it means and how we do it. But he says we hold on for dear life to God's truth. Look at verse 24. To the rest of you in Thyatira, those in verse 19, who do not hold this teaching, who have not... Learned what some call the deep things of Satan. I'll translate, who have not bought into this lie. I don't lay any other burden, only this hold fast what you have until I come. Hold on for dear life to God's truth. Holding fast here means gripping tightly to God's truth against the pull of the culture around us. It involves holding on to the truth that we see in God's word, no matter the difficulty. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, in John 17, 17, he said, make them holy by your truth. This is his prayer for his people. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. So to hold fast to the truth, For us is to hold fast to the word of God, to grip it tightly. And that invites difficulty, right? It will make us cultural outliers. It might cost us. It might cost us friendships. It might cost us career advancement. It might cost us legitimacy in the sight of the culture around us. It might even, in some places in some time, cost us our very lives. Holding fast. Means that if it's here, if it's in God's word, then it is true and that it is good. Even if I don't understand it. Holding tight to the truth of the scripture leaves us no room to grab on to what someone else might tell us is true. Our grip is fixed on the truth of God's word. Now that's important because While we are not of the world, we are in the world, aren't we? And we are on a mission to the world. And so holding tight to the truth protects us as we take the message of the gospel to our friends and neighbors. We're like the Coast Guard. You see them flying around in the the helicopter. They go down into the waves to rescue those who are drowning. But they're tethered, aren't they? They are roped in. To what is secure and to what will save them. And so we hold fast to God's truth. Now, that's not easy. That's why we have to do it together. That's why we do it together as we look forward to a better tomorrow. Look back at verse 24. Jesus said to the rest of you, this is plural. This may be a small group in verse 19, this may be a remnant, but they are not alone. They're not alone. They're in it together. And here's the reality. We need one another. We need friends. We need brothers and sisters. Listen, who will tell us when we are being stupid. (laughs) Who will tell us when we are wandering away from the truth. I remember About 20 years ago, I took a trip through Europe with a couple of friends, and I was on a train basically for 10 days. And at the end of that 10 days, I smelled, I'd been on a train for 10 days. But here's the thing, I didn't know I smelled, because I was so comfortable with my own stench that it didn't dawn on me, until someone came up and gave me a hug and said, whoa, you stink, Right? Olfactory fatigue. My nostrils had just kind of gotten used to my smell and someone had to come up to me and say, hey, you smell, right? Proverbs 27, six. Wounds from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. We need friends who will tell us the truth in order to rescue us from the precipice. I just think of Hebrews chapter 3 where the writer of Hebrews, he says, Be careful, brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it's still called today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. What a warning. We need one another. Listen, even if it means, even if it means what we say hurts, we need friends who will tell us the truth. And we encourage one another in hope that one day things will be different, that this is a short, temporary struggle. Notice again in verse uh, 24. Sorry, verse uh, 25. Only hold fast what you have until I come. We hold fast until. Our struggle is not eternal. It is temporal. And so we encourage one another in the hope that one day things will be different. The future's bright, Jesus is going to go on to say. For those true believers... Who hold on to faith, who overcome. Verse 26 The one who conquers, the one who has enduring faith, the one who holds on till the end, and who keeps my word, to him or her I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from the Father, and I will give him the morning star. What awaits us in eternity, for those who overcome in faith, what awaits us is a share of the victory that Jesus will bring. Listen, one day the tables will be turned, and Jesus will win the final victory, and those who are with him who overcome in faith will share in that victory and the glory that Jesus will bring as we live with Him in His presence. The morning star was the brightest star before the dawn. And it meant that a new day is coming. A new day is dawning. A new day for us with our Savior. Unencumbered by sin and temptation, unencumbered by difficulty, and that's what we look forward to in hope, together. We can't compromise. Small things matter. But to stand up exclusively for the gospel is costly in this world, isn't it? We may suffer ridicule. We may lose our jobs. We may lose friends. We may even be beaten or killed. But there is a bright hope And that is that one day Jesus will return and tables will be turned and he will judge the sinfulness of the world system and he will rescue us from whatever suffering we may be facing. And our call until he comes is to hold on for dear life to God's truth together in hope. As we close today, I just want to read Ephesians 4, verse 11 to 16. These are the words of the Apostle Paul, thinking about this local church to whom he's writing. These are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do His work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown, around, blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth to one another in love. We will speak the truth in love. Let's pray. Father, as we think about the things that we face in this world, I pray that you would help us to be faithful. Father, that we wouldn't compromise on things that we think may be small, knowing that small things don't stay small, they, they get big and the consequences get big. But Father, help us to be faithful. Help us to hold on for dear life, to your truth, that we might anchor ourselves in it. Father, please make us faithful. I pray, Father, for those that may not have ever turned to Jesus who who need to repent and turn away from whatever they're trusting in to trusting fully in Christ and the death that he died. Father, that maybe today would be the day when they would surrender in faith and trust and receive that offer of new life that you've promised all who turn to Jesus. And Father, I know that our temptation is to dabble in sin. I pray, Father, that you would pull us away from that, that we would see the severity of that. And I pray, Father, that you would Give us courage to not only say what is true to one another, but to hear what is true from one another. And God, that you would do a work in us. Help us to be a faithful church in the midst of a crooked and corrupt generation. Father, that we would be salt and light to those around us.